Welcome to China in Context. I'm Duncan Bartlett. It's not easy to govern a large and complex country like China. The hard work falls to about 40 million party and government officials known as cadres. And these include powerful figures such as provincial governors, bosses of state-owned enterprises and chief prosecutors. Originally, cadres were defined as professional revolutionaries dedicated to the goals of the Communist Party. They still need to be loyal communists, but most of them spend more time on paperwork than insurrection. Well, we're joined on the podcast today by a historian and analyst who's revealed much about this important aspect of Chinese society through his fascinating research. He's the author of the recent book, Cadre Country, How China Became the Chinese Communist Party. I'm delighted to be joined by John Fitzgerald, Emeritus Professor at Swinburne University in Melbourne, Australia. John, welcome to China in Context. Delighted to join you, Duncan. Now, my impression reading your book is that the life of a cadre is a good one. It's a relatively well-paid job. It's quite secure. But it seems there's a catch. Cadres must constantly prove their loyalty to the party. What's your take on their work? Well, for cadres, there have been bad times as, as well as good. The Cultural Revolution was a particularly brutal time. Something like two in three of the tens of millions of cadres lost their positions or publicly humiliated. Many committed suicide. They did much better. Uh, over the following years, the, the 30 years of reform that's from sort of 1979 to 2010 or thereabouts, when they straddled the state sector and the economy boomed and they were in a position to profit from it. And some of them um, did very well. Um, some grew incredibly rich. But then when Xi Jinping came in, the, the risk factors were elevated again. He introduced an anti-corruption campaign that really put two million of these cadres uh, under scrutiny, under investigation in a relatively short time. Now, right now, the risks appear to be falling and the benefits, while also falling, are still relatively good because the private economy is, is tanking. You know, the alternative to being a carter manager is to be a private sector manager. That's how people think about it. And the private sector is not doing so well. So it's all relative. And if you're at the, the grassroots level, life can be very, very tough. Well, I think life has been tough during the zero COVID situation in China, actually, for a lot of people as we've been hearing on this podcast from people from Shanghai and Hong Kong. Um, but uh, what about cadres standing in society now? Are they popular? Uh, one measure over time is how well they do on the marriage market. This is too has gone up and down, but right now they're doing pretty well. I mean, I'm thinking here of male cadres for the most part. Most senior cadres are male. But there's this social media fad around what's called office style or Ting Jufeng department bureau outfit. And this refers to a sort of every mother-in-law's dream outfit that a prospective young bridegroom would be seen striding down the street in. It's very understated. Polo shirts tucked in at the waist, dark cotton zip jackets with flat lapels, nothing that could possibly draw attention. And that's the message for cadres in Xi Jinping's new age. Lie low, say little, profess loyalty, be dutiful, do nothing more than truly asked of you and you'll survive and quite possibly prosper. And you may well make a very, very good marriage match. In some ways, the Chinese system is a meritocracy. People have to pass tough exams in order to get one of these good jobs. 
Yet in your book, you suggest that the system entrenches inequality. Can you explain why you say that? Sure. Well, meritocracy is under scrutiny everywhere these days, not just in China, and, and chiefly because it doesn't live up to expectations. The party and government recruit from among the best and brightest graduates in the country, but is the education system fair? But that's not actually what I'm arguing. I'm going a bit beyond that. I argue that the ideal of meritocracy in the Confucian and Leninist sort of frames is more of a problem than the flawed practice, because it's based on the idea that people are not fundamentally equal. So in the Confucian case, the argument for meritocracy turns on the idea people have no right to be treated equally because they're not born equal. In the Confucian scheme of things, this meritocratic government is organised around clear relational hierarchies, rulers and subjects, officials and commoners, men and women, and, and so on. People are not assumed to be equal. They belong to the category and categories are hierarchically structured. Similarly, communist systems or Leninist systems operate on similar principles. They deny equality of rights across whole categories of people, you know, placing workers over business people or tenant farmers over landlords, Marxist zealots over liberal intellectuals. And they make the, the party a sort of self-appointed vanguard protecting these categorical rights and privileges. So, and, the, and the system for selecting into this vanguard to become a cadre um, has the effect of excluding the vast majority of people from participating. So it's not just unequal, I'd suggest, it's, it's disempowering. Do cadres always remain loyal to the concept of socialism? I'm thinking about intellectually talented people with good language skills who've been abroad to study at a university, let's say in Australia or in the UK. Are they committed socialists? A student going overseas to study and coming back saying, I want to be a cadre is unlikely to be a likely candidate. Let me put it that way. In fact, study abroad can prove a barrier to cadre selection and, and promotion, particularly in ministries dealing with defence or security or policing or law and justice in the court system. You know, if, if you have an international law degree, you're not going to rise very far as a cadre. That, that's not to say that study abroad counts for nothing. Of course, it's, it's eye-opening for the students who go abroad, and not everyone in China is a cadre. But many people in China, including cadres, are very proud, really, of China's achievements in recent times, and they don't see many other countries doing quite as well. They look across the United States. The comparisons are not always favourable. Well, I can see why, from an educational point of view, people might appreciate uh, coming to look at Britain. But uh, given the political situation here in the past few weeks, uh, John, uh, we're not exactly modelling a great system of political governance to the rest of the world. <laughs> I wanted to ask you a question about how disciplined the cadres are. I mentioned earlier that Lenin expected cadres to be professional revolutionaries. That suggests they should be very zealous in their work. Is that what you found doing your research for your book? Well, cadres are not public servants. We need to remember this. They're not public servants, then. Is the word civil servant incorrect to use about them? Well, China has a civil service, but they're the people in the office that the cadres overseeing. The cadres are those who hold executive or who hold positions where decisions are taken, um, what are called responsible positions on the whole. That doesn't apply to all of them, but that's generally the, the rule that applies. So they're not driven by an ethic of public service. Perhaps members of the public service are, but they're not. Their, their credo is one of loyalty to the party, and they're selected, as I said, for, for their loyalty, at least the profession of it. Uh, loyalty to the leadership, to the mission, to top-down management style. Material incentives obviously play a part, and so the question of how disciplined they are is how well they comply with the current leadership's directives. Now, under Mao's day, 
that meant you had to be zealous. You had to be a zealous Maoist. And off you went and you criticised your Mao's enemies. You deposed them from office. You, you set yourself up in office in their place. That sort of zealotry was rewarded. In the reform era, not so, not so at all. The way in which material incentives were set up to encourage cadre conduct and to discipline them, really, were organised around economic development and state control of birth planning and, and the likes. And the cadres that could... Um, meet those objectives, you know, their targets were, were duly rewarded. So in a way, it's not just a question of being disciplined. It's it's also a question of being, it's about being loyal and it's about responding to the incentives the parties put in place, irrespective of what local people happen to say. We need to remember that cadres, senior cadres, are actually foreigners to the places they govern. On the whole, the party does not appoint locals to senior executive positions, particularly anything to do with um, finance, anything to do with policing, and anything to do with party discipline or party management itself or party leadership. So a party secretary is not likely to be a local person. I find that very interesting because when we've been talking about Hong Kong recently on this podcast, several people have said to me, oh, well, the people who are now being invited in to run Hong Kong have got experience of running places like uh, Xinjiang or Tibet. Uh, they're used to uh, dealing with unrest and uh, rebellion. Now, that suggested that the uh, communist state was choosing hardliners to step into run Hong Kong. But what you're suggesting is that this is actually a mechanism which is used across China to uh, bring people from different provinces to work in uh, what you might describe as a foreign region. That's right. That is an old imperial tradition that's been continued by the Communist Party at the present time. What was sort of curious about the deal involving Hong Kong, the great concession that the Chinese government made, that Beijing made, was that Hong Kongers could rule Hong Kong. They didn't mean they could vote. They meant they won't be from Shandong or Jiangsu or Jiangxi. We'll make an exception and allow Hong Kongers to rule their own province. That only makes sense if you understand that no locals actually govern any other place in China. There are exceptions, but as a general rule, that's the way the system works. So a public service ethic sort of doesn't apply. I mean, if, if you're a, an alien in a place, you're not responding to the community in a horizontal sense, the people around you. You're responding to directives from above. This is where cadre loyalty, cadre discipline, the idea of a cadre acting on behalf of the central government, imposing, in effect, central administrative decisions over local communities without regard to what those communities think or feel, is a key part of uh, Carter's job description. So you say then that this is a top-down system of governance, and I'm assuming that the person at the top of the pile is Xi Jinping. I've often said that he's turning himself into chairman of everything. So in this hierarchical service system, how does Chairman Xi get his way? Well, let's go back to the um, anti-corruption campaign. I mean, the first thing he did when he came to office and he set in place a system which has rolled out over five or six years, which took down about two million cadres. He was then able to put his own people in their place. And so everyone who has been removed and replaced by Xi Jinping owes their position to him or his people. That's the first thing. That puts him in charge of a system that is fundamentally loyal to him. Now, the point is that the remainder of them, whether it's five or six or 10 to 12 or 20, to 30 million are basically living in fear and not going to step out of line. The stories one hears are not around zealotry or around loyalty. 
so much as around inertia, a system that's sort of grinding to a halt. I mean, everyday administration is carried through effectively, and, and there's an extraordinary response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, but generally speaking, when it comes to investment or new policies or innovation in government, there's very, very little of it that isn't coming from the top. Now, what drove China's reform, what drove the economic development was local initiative. That's pretty well gone, the way Xi Jinping's reorganised things. Uh, local officials are afraid of stepping out of line because they could be considered corrupt. Um, why do that when you can just get by doing as little as possible? That appears, that inertia appears to be the consequence of his style of leadership. To quote from your book, she professed no intention to revert to a command economy and yet wanted a market economy at his command. It's a very striking phrase. But I wonder how capable the cadre system is in dealing with a complex market economy in which China is constantly trading with the rest of the world. I guess that's the question a lot of people are asking. That's exactly right, Duncan. So China became a really wealthy and powerful country on the back of market reforms, really an international trade, basically following in the model, the East Asian model pioneered in Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, then emulated by the post-communist states in Eastern Europe. So there's nothing unique about it, except this. China has no intention of becoming a post-communist state. So that's where China is now drawing the line and saying we're not simply following the East Asian model. We have a unique model, um, and it's one that Xi Jinping is rolling out. It's the model of the new age, Xin Shidai, as he called it, a, a command and control model of government that demands absolute loyalty and obedience. Now, that's all very well for cadres, and we've been talking about that, then in public administration, you know, bringing them into line. But what does it mean for in entrepreneurial ingenuity or the animal spirits that are often said to drive markets? So when Xi Jinping tells, say, entrepreneurs or private firms to be loyal and obedient to himself, it seems he's probably placing the vibrancy of the private economy at risk. The risk is that the, the, the sort of inertia that's hit the Carter system will make its way into the private economy. And that's not a good thing in the private economy. But he's a risk taker. He's pushing ahead. At the, at the local level, he's encouraging governments to take over private firms to uh, amalgamate state and private sector firms at the local level. He's intimidating and jailing entrepreneurs. John, thank you. I think you've given us some great insights into aspects of Chinese life that uh, are often invisible to uh, foreigners. That was Professor John Fitzgerald from Swinburne University on the line from Melbourne. We were discussing his book, Kaja Country, How China Became the Chinese Communist Party. This podcast is produced by the SOAS China Institute, and you can find out more about our activities, including our latest courses and research on our website. That's soas.ac.uk. Alternatively, you can type SOAS China Institute into a search engine. But until next time, that's all from us here on the China in Context podcast team. Thank you.